And before, before we get into 1 Samuel chapter 15, I want to I give you a frame, sort of a frame of reference of how to read this chapter uh, and how to look at what's going on. Um, a lot of times when people talk about God's sovereignty and they talk about the sovereignty of God, they, they kind of allude, we kind of get that definition mixed up. And we allude to God has made a decision that cannot be changed. All of his decisions have already been made and none of them can be changed. And it's just all of, all of life is sort of like fate, like the concept of fate, that it's on a fixed path and no one can do anything about it. And that's not really what the Bible shows. So the, the proper definition of sovereign, and sometimes you'll hear this, you hear this right now with North Korea, you hear this with, we heard it in the Kuwait war, a sovereign nation. We don't want to hurt this nation's sovereignty. So then all of a sudden you're kind of like, okay, that can't mean the same word sovereign as we say, you know, whatever God picks can't be changed because a country can be changed a lot, right? Sovereignty has more to do with independence and not being affected by other things. So we were driving here this morning. We were recollecting about there's another day we were driving to church and there's like 150 motorcycles driving down the Lloyd Expressway and they're all in a row and they get to uh, Wabash and the lights red and they didn't stop and they just I mean, what? and we're just cringing. I'm like, I'm just waiting for that car to come flying through the green light and, you know, mow them all down. Just, ugh. They were going, and they were unaffected by that traffic light. They were able to do, and I mean, there was no police around. I don't know how, I don't know how, what would have happened. But they were completely unaffected by that stoplight. You could almost say that as far as that stoplight was concerned, they were sovereign. They were acting independently. <laughs> they were acting independently of traffic laws, safety, respect. <laughs> they were sovereign. They were, they were unaffected by outward things. So that is more accurate to when we say God is sovereign. He's unaffected by outward things. He's, he is completely independent. He is completely powerful. He doesn't need anything. This is all, oh, I, I just, I love the way I'm setting all this up. Because this sounds a little bit like heresy. And it sounds a little bit like the New Age concept of God where He is in the heavens and we're on earth and there's no, you know, uh, the whole stupid song, God is watching us from a distance and all that nonsense. That He's uninvolved. But, if God is truly sovereign, He is completely unaffected, completely independent, completely all-powerful, He is also powerful enough to allow Himself to be affected whenever He wants to be affected. So think about that for a minute. If he's completely all-powerful and unaffected by anything and can do whatever he wants and has his will and always gets his will, that also allows him to sometimes say, 
I want to be vulnerable. I want to be moved by this. I want to feel something. I want to feel this. I'm going to allow myself to suffer and to be weakened and to experience this feeling. So he can also do that. I have a buddy, and he's really good at jujitsu. He's so good at jujitsu that in order to compete with someone that's better than him, he has to go to this certain building in California that he can only go to every three years because that's like how the rotation works and blah, 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 because he's so good. And so with his class and his training, sometimes they'll be like, okay, guys, uh, tie my hands together. And they tie his hands together. And he goes and sits down on the floor. And he says, okay, one at a time, come at me. And he beats all of them with both hands tied behind his back. What's he doing when he's doing that? He is allowing himself to be weakened some so that the experience of his students and the teacher can be deepened. And when I see Casey submitting himself, tying his hands up or saying, I'm only going to sit on the floor. He is submitting himself. He's weakening himself. He's opening up some of his independence so that he can interact more. And so what else happens? So his students can learn how to do jujitsu better. So they learn better. So with all that for context, in 1 Samuel 15, we have a sovereign God who doesn't ever make a wrong decision, who is all wise, all powerful, can do all kinds of things in a couple different ways, completely submitting himself and weakening himself so that people can interact with him even better. And the other cool thing is it's not for him. It's not for God's sake that he has to learn something or he has to experience something. It's all for us. And then, spoiler alert, ultimately, when does God do this the most? When he becomes flesh, he walks among us, and he is Jesus. And he takes his sovereignty that can call in a legion of angels and kill all the Romans, and he submits that and instead gets crucified on the cross. This is a little dip. This is a little, this is a little salsa bowl chip taste of that in 1 Samuel 15. So Samuel says to Saul, no, oh, okay, hold on, wait. Samuel's still talking to Saul? We thought Saul got fired. Remember how Saul became king like four times? And he was like, I thought they already made him king. And then they all go to Gilgal and they make him king. And then, well, Saul also gets fired about four times. It takes a couple times to get him fully out the door. This is the second to last one. 1 Samuel 15, Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you to be king over his people. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. So he got fired, but he's still the king. And he still has some work to do. I've noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek, devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them. But kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel, donkey, puppies, kittens, everything. Kill it all. 
And you read that and you're like, whoa, that is, why is God so angry, so wrathful? Well, the other thing that has to do with God's sovereignty and his rightness and his correctness is that he knows how to do right judgment. He knows, he knows how to, you know, we might have questions. Did this person do it or did they not do it? Was this person, uh, did they do this bad thing on purpose or was it an accident? God knows. God looks in the hearts and he knows. The stuff that he's talking about that Amalek did was 300 years before this. And so while God knows their evil and their wickedness that they did 300 years ago, He knows that for 300 years, they have not repented. They have not changed their ways. So one way you can say, gosh, why is God so cruel? He's killing everything, even the duckies and the bunnies. But he's been giving them 300 years of mercy. Because at any moment, he could open up the earth, swallow them all up, and it'd be done. Right? So after 300 years of patience with them, of waiting for them, and they still have not changed, now God is going to wipe them out. And he's going to wipe them out using Saul. Who, even though Saul's no longer going to be king, he's been cut off. Well, you know what? This is the moment and this is the time that's the best for that to happen. And so Saul has a chance to fulfill his duties as a king. He is going to keep on being the king until the new king comes. The new king hasn't come yet. So he's still going to do the work of the king. So Saul summoned the people. Saul did it. All right. He summoned the people. He numbered them. And tell him, 200,000 men on foot, 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go depart. Go down from among the Amalekites. Otherwise, I'll destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. Wow, this is good. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. So now you've got Saul is obeying God. And he's going and he's wiping out the Amalekites. Like God said, you've got God's judgment happening. That God told them judgment would come. And they didn't repent for 300 years. You have some wisdom and mercy from Saul that we're going to wipe all these people out. But you guys, hey, what are you doing over here? Kenites, get out of there. We're going to wipe all these people out. You guys, you shouldn't be in here. And they all left. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. So they killed everybody. Like they were told. Except for Agag. Wait a minute. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. That's not good, right? That's not how this was supposed to go. They were supposed to wipe out everything, destroy it all. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. So the skinny calf, the, the skinny goat, they killed. The fat one that looks good, oh, let's take that. We're going to sacrifice it back home on the grill. And they took all the good stuff back. 
and the king, Agag. Samuel is not there. Samuel's not a part of the fight. He told Saul what to do. He said, go do this. They go do it. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. So think about Samuel. Samuel's getting old. He's, you know, he's had these Saul moments. He's probably praying for this fight and this battle. Uh, He might just be at home, you know, doing normal day-to-day stuff. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Can you, like, just the whole idea of the way Samuel would talk to God is, is amazing. But then for Samuel to hear God say, I regret that I did this. I'm sorry that I ever... What was the biggest, greatest accomplishment of all of Samuel's life? Giving Israel a king, right? He was the last of the judges. The book of Judges comes to a close with Samuel. And Samuel is kind of the last judge. And now we're going to move into the kingdom age where we're going to have kings. And I'm Samuel and I'm going to help us do that. And God regrets that he ever did it. And I was his instrument for that. How do you think Samuel's going to feel from that? He was friends with Saul. They became friends. They, they interacted a lot. Not, I mean, it wasn't just a formal business, you know. They, they were probably friends. It says in verse 11, Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night long. He's angry. It doesn't say who he's, it doesn't say he's angry at himself. It doesn't say he's angry at Saul. He, could, he has reason to be angry at Saul. It doesn't say if he's angry at God. He has reason to be angry at God. Because God's the one that picked Saul, right? It wasn't Samuel. Oh, all night. Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. So we don't get details in the Bible, but just to be straight up honest, just to picture this scene, Samuel had to look like an absolute mess. Because he's up all night being angry and crying out to God. He's not going to look like, hey, everybody, right? No amount of coffee is going to fix him at this point. Samuel rose. He goes to meet Saul and he can't find him. And they say, Saul came to Carmel. And behold, he set up a monument for himself, and he turned and he passed on and went to Gilgal. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said, Saul sees him. He says, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Isn't it amazing how Saul is just like super religious guy sometimes, and you just want to smack him. It's like, no. He's trying to cover up. He feels guilty. And he is immediately trying to be religious to cover this up. This is one of my favorite lines of the Bible. Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen I hear? He shows up and Saul's like, Blessed be God. Praise God. I, I love God. God bless you. God, God, God. And Samuel's not buying it. He's like, why do I hear sheep, dude? 
Why do I even hear an animal? What have you done? Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people, do you catch this? Not me. The people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop. He's like, just just quit with your sacrifice. Quit with your devoted to destruction. That word devoted to destruction is just one word. And it's halal. And all, all the rest is halal. It's like, don't even use, don't even say a holy sacrifice to me, Saul. You're so messed up. Don't even talk religion to me. He says, stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. So Saul says, okay, speak. Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, don't you realize you're the head of all the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you to be king over Israel. Now, I'm not reading this right. I'm not going to read it right because it would freak you out. But this guy has stayed up all night crying angry. So this is probably... Right? I mean, he is furious. We just, we don't get it from this, but he is, he is livid. The Lord anointed you king over Israel. The Lord sent you on a mission. Said, go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites. You know, you are God's instrument of vengeance and judgment. Do it. Fight against them until they're consumed. Why did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what is evil? Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission to which the Lord sent me. Isn't that wild? He is convinced that he did the right thing. He really thinks... Hold on, it gets better. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. He brought the king back into their territory. Like, <laughs> it's like the whole, I don't want that in my house. He sinned by bringing Agag back into Israel. But the people took the spoil, the sheep and the oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. He's got this idea that we can do better than God. God has this plan on how to do things and he told us, but you know what would be even better is if we did it like this. And gosh, as much as I can yell at them and get mad at Saul and smack him upside the head and be like, oh, he's so dumb. I mean, are we not all in the same boat? Where we hear this clear thing of, oh man, God wants me to love my enemies. So I'm going to do this to build myself up to stack up my own ways because I really haven't been good to myself. And how can I've heard I've heard Christian people say, how can I love others like I love myself when I don't love myself? So I need to spend some time loving myself. It's like, no. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, The Cost of Discipleship, it goes through a bunch of this. It, it, he has some really good stuff to say about the way 
the way we kind of bend, you know, God doesn't really mean this. He really wants me to do this instead. And we end up doing the total opposite of what God calls us to do because we make it complicated. We add a whole bunch of stuff to it to make it look really good instead of just keeping it simple. Simple obedience. Whenever you're reading the Old Testament, if you're reading along and you read something and you think, I think Jesus said that. You want to get your study Bible, you want to get your cross-references, you want to find it and then look at it in context. If you're reading along 1 Samuel 15 and all of a sudden, verse 22, Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen is better than the fat of rams. Whoa. To obey is better than sacrifice. Jesus said that when the Pharisees were arguing about him eating with sinners. Jesus is spending time with sinful people, with unclean people. And the Pharisees are judging him. And he says, hey, you guys, go find out what this means. Because these guys were experts in the Old Testament. They were experts in the law. He said, go find out what this means. To obey is better than sacrifice. And to listen to God is better than the fat of rams. So if they heard that, they would be like, oh, they know what comes next. The very next verse. Rebellion is like the sin of divination. And presumption is like iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord He has also rejected you from being king. So in this instance with Samuel and Saul, he says God doesn't want sacrifices. God doesn't need a bunch of sheep to be burnt up. The whole point is that you're sacrificing something, you're not taking it for yourself, and you're giving it to God, and that enhances a relationship between you and God because you're showing God... I'm going to trust you, God. I don't need all this sheep to provide for me, to make me feel fat, and make me feel happy. I'm I'm depending on you to make me feel happy. I don't need to show off what a great sacrifice I have to show what a great king I am. I need you. I need your friendship to see what kind of friend I am. Or what kind of person I am to lift me up, to build me up. To rebel is like the sin of divination. Okay, divination. uh, These guys were crazy throughout history. There's been all different forms of this. Sometimes you take a goat and you cut its intestines out and you smear all the poop that falls out of its intestines onto the ground. And then you look at it and then you go, oh, uh, this is going to happen and you're going to have three kids and you'll be happy all your days because of the shape of the intestines and the goat poop. That's divination. When he says divination, the current thing that he's talking about is that kind of thing. Uh, I know in the 70s, people would have tea in their teacup, and they would drink tea, and there'd be tea leaves left, and they'd be like, read my tea leaves. And they would be like, oh, you're going to make a whole lot of money. It always turns into you're going to make a whole lot of money, and you're going to be happy. Why? Because that's what people love to hear. The devil is a liar. He's going to rope you in by telling you 
whatever you want to hear, right? Rebellion is as bad as witchcraft. Rebelling against God is as bad as saying you're a sorcerer that has power greater than God. Wow. Presumption. Presumption is a funny word in here. Presumption is assuming that you know it all. Assuming that you have every answer and that you don't need God to explain anything to you because you already know it. Presumption, because that's what Saul was, right? Saul thought he knew a better way to do a sacrifice. God wanted everything wiped out in the land. Saul brought it all back to wipe it out here. He had a better plan. That, that is like iniquity and idolatry. That's like bowing down to a gold statue. Is thinking that you have it all figured out and you understand it all. So, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. So take that context. He's rejected you from being king. This is it. This is the final straw for Saul. He is not going to... He will continue to be in the office of king. He will receive no more help from God. Ever. Think about when Jesus said that to the Pharisees. He's eating with sinful people. He's forgiving people's sins. He's not judging them. He's giving them truth. The Pharisees say, you're wicked, you're evil. He says, hey, go find out what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Obeying the voice of the Lord is better than the fat of rams. The guy in Hebrews 10, when, when Paul wrote Hebrews chapter 10, he, just, he puts this in another light. When Christ came into the world, this is Hebrews 10.5. When Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. God doesn't desire all that burnt stuff and all the ritual. But then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. God wants us to do his will. God wants us, not a bunch of fat cows. <laughs> That's not what he desires. The fat cow was an expression of our love to him and our expression that we are his. But that's not what he wanted. He never desired or taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings. He wants us. So Jesus did that, right? He was the one. He came. So what happens to Saul? He says, stop it. He says this stuff. Rebellion is a sin. Saul says to Samuel, Saul repents. <gasps> really? I will not. Oh, I'm so sorry. Pardon my sin. I did not. I feared the people. I didn't listen to God. This all sounds good, right? Now, please pardon me and come back with me so that I can pray to God and bow before the Lord. And, and pray to him. That sounds close. But Samuel's not buying it. He says, no. You rejected the word of the Lord. The Lord's rejected you. 
Samuel turns to walk away and Saul grabs his clothing, grabs his cloak. Please! He's desperate. He grabs it, rips Samuel's robe, right? I mean, rips the edge of it. You know that's going to make... You know, Saul, remember, Samuel is out of his mind angry. He's been up all night. He's sleep-deprived angry, the whole thing. He says, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and given it to a neighbor who is better than you. Just like you just tore my robe, the Lord has torn this out of you. The glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. He is not a man that he should have regret. Wait a minute, but didn't we just say... That God said he regretted. So if you read that and it's a speed bump and it slows you down, look at the context of it. He's not a man that he carries regret. And this is really an awesome, awesome thing. God does not sit around the way people do and hate somebody for a really long time. He does what he's going to do. So with the Amalekites, it was 300 years before he destroyed the Amalekites. It's not that God was mad for 300 years and just stewing and getting angrier and angrier and wondering what to do. It was, this is terrible. They're terrible. I want to give them a chance to repent. And then he kept giving them chances for 300 years. With us... God does not say, oh, Dan, those sins that you committed, they just make me so angry. I'm just stewing in it. No. For the believer, Jesus Christ took all of those sins. It says, as far as the east is from the west, God does not remember. God is not mad at me for my sin. He doesn't regret. He doesn't have bitterness. He's not mad. My sin is taken away and wiped away. For the unbeliever, this is where we get into God's sovereignty, right? God allows himself to be hurt. Oh, please. It says he's longing. There's, there's, there's scriptures that refer to God longing and hoping for people to turn and to change. But... He knows that he's fixed today when the end of the world comes, that judgment will come and everything will be, I say made right. Everything will be made right, but that means for some people it's going to be punishment. It's going to be judgment and wrath. And it's storing up wrath, not that God's spending all eternity angry, 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 getting more angry. It's here it is. He warned you. So he's not going to soak in it and, and get bitter. So he leaves and he says, please come with me one last time. And honor me. Bring here so I can be honored in front of the people. Can you believe that? Saul said that. Come back with me so that I can be honored. And then you realize, you know what? He's not sorry at all. He just wants to keep his power. Oddly enough, this is where Samuel goes with him. This is another one of those gruesome but a cool part of the Bible. He goes back. He prays to the Lord. Samuel says, bring here to me Agag, king of the Amalekites. Remember, they, brought, they killed everybody. They brought the king back. 
And the king comes and he says, surely the bitterness of death is past. There's two different ways to translate this. And basically, he's wondering. He could, on one hand, he could be thinking, hey, I'm going to live. Everybody got killed, but I'm going to make it. And the other one is when he gets brought out, he's thinking, oh, this is it. It's awesome. Remember how I said that he's, that Saul is no longer going to be king? That God's no longer going to speak to him or work through him. He's going to function in the office of king, but God's not going to help him in any way. Samuel said, bring here to me Agag, king of the Amalekites. And he came. Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel himself hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. I think that is a big deal because God didn't even use Saul. Saul who is standing right there. Saul who has only one of two swords in the whole army. God didn't even use Saul to do this easy thing. That is how much Saul has been disposed of. That's how it's just showing here we go, we got a prisoner right here. He's probably not a good fighter because he's probably the king and he's probably has a bunch of people to fight for him. This is a really easy shot. Saul, we're not even going to use you for this. And Samuel right in front of him takes out about 48 hours of aggression and anger and it's just gross, right? But he's also showing Saul, dude, this is what God's wrath looks like. If you didn't know, because you had everybody pick all the good stuff, man, there's just there's so much in that scene. That's that gruesome scene of Samuel himself doing this. This could be the first person Samuel has ever done this. I mean, Samuel's not a warrior, right? He's a prophet. He's Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, which is going to be years. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. He just, he, they reemphasized that. This is it. This has been the final thing. Now at this point, what could Saul do? Saul could change his life. Because the ground didn't open up and swallow Saul and destroy him, right? It left him in power. And we're going to see over the next couple chapters how Saul wields that power and how he lives from here on out. God is sovereign. He accomplishes what he wants to accomplish all the time. But there's a lot of times that he will willingly weaken himself just to be close to us. And that's opportunity for us to watch and to see. And it might be horrible, but he is weakening himself to go through it with us together. Because he loves us so. That's how much he loves us. That even though he doesn't have to do, he doesn't have to stop at a stoplight. He can just roll right through it. Safe, But out of his love for us, he stops. Out of his love for us, he weakens himself to feel this stuff, to be close. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much that in the complex way of bringing a king to Israel, that you would show us so much about your character and your mercy and your tenderness and your kindness and your compassion. Lord, I pray that we would get this, that we would get 
that in the midst of your sovereignty, you do let things be weak just so we could be closer together, just so we could be intimate friends. And that that is more important than kingdoms. It's more important than taking our enemies and plundering them. That the most important thing would be that you and us could be close together and be just friends and loved ones with each other, Lord. We praise you and we thank you and we exalt you. Amen. All right. Let's stand and sing number 263 together.